There's a story about a young man right out of college taking a job to sell insurance. One day he goes into a department store and he finds the office of the sales manager there and he sticks his head into the, into the office and says, sir, she, sir, by chance, do you have any interest in possibly buying some insurance? He says this very timidly, very sheepishly. And the sales manager's aghast. He said, who, who taught you how to sell? That's like the worst pitch I've ever seen. You need confidence when you're selling. I, I'm just going to buy some insurance just to give you some confidence. So after the transaction, he says, listen, you need to have confidence when you sell. Just, you need to figure out this customer, what they want, and then that's, you know, that's your approach to take with them. And so this salesman said, you know, I, I, I get it. I, I just gave you my approach for sales managers, and it works almost every time. Now, I'm sure this story isn't true. I'm sure it's a bad, corny joke told at like sales conferences and whatnot. But I mention it because it's an example of prudence. Both what we tend to think prudence is today and how prudence has been understood classically throughout Western civilization. And prudence is the key to understanding our gospel tonight. A gospel which contains the parable of the dishonest steward, one that is widely considered the most difficult of all Jesus' parables to understand. It begins with a steward. Now, a steward in the ancient world, this was an administrative position, basically a manager of a large household, a wealthy estate. Manager would, he would uh, oversee the domestic help in staff and servants. He would also manage accounts. All right, so this was a position with a lot of responsibility, but it also had its perks. You could slowly but steadily get rich. Um, you had a comfortable life. And th there was a lot of prestige that went with the position. This steward, we aren't told how it happened, but he squanders his master's property. And he knows what comes next. He'll be fired. And then, really, he... He doesn't know how he's going to survive. He's been in this cushy job for so long, he's too weak to dig. He's been in this prestigious job for so long, he's too proud to beg. So he hatches a dishonest scheme. What he tries to do is curry favor with all the people who owe his master money or goods. So one owes 100 measures of olive oil, and he says, give me your promissory note, give me your receipt. And he has him write a new one for 50. He's slashing his debt by 50%, and he does this for several debtors. Why? Well, the hope is when he's fired, one of these debtors will take him in and hire him because he, he did them a solid. They, they owe him one now. So far, pretty easy to understand. Nothing's too complicated. But this is where we get the unexpected twist, makes it a little perplexing. The master, the master whose property has already been squandered by this steward, finds out that he's also cheated him out of even more of his assets, and he commends him for acting prudently. 
And then Jesus gives the explanation at the end of the parable where he says, for the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Of light. And at first glance, this explanation is as perplexing as the master commending the steward for acting prudently. What's going on here? It hinges on that word prudent. What does it mean to be prudent? Often today, we think prudent is somebody who is hyper-cautious, timid, sheepish, like that salesman presented himself initially to the sales manager. That's what we think of as prudent. But for most of Western civilization, prudence has been seen as a really good virtue, a foundational virtue, a virtue we want our leaders to have, right? Prudence is the virtue that disposes our reason, our mind, to discern our true good in every circumstance and to choose the right means to achieve that good. Prudence enables us to look at a situation and to see how we ought to act in light of our end, our ultimate end of heaven, or, you know, simply a goal we're trying to achieve. achieve. The dishonest steward, he gives us an example not of the virtue of prudence per se, because he's doing something evil, but it is kind of a worldly prudence, a shrewdness. And we can still see the structure or skeleton of prudence in his decision and actions. First, he realizes he will be judged. Then he realizes he needs to have a new home. This becomes his goal. And he orders his actions accordingly so that he can secure that goal. Now let's apply these areas to our life. First, the steward, he, he knew he would soon be judged. And we, we soon the day will come when each of us are judged as well. The day will come when each of us hear those same words, prepare a full account of your stewardship. Because here's the truth, the goods that we have, the good things in our life, whether we're talking material wealth, whether we're talking family, friends, whether we're talking uh, gifts and talents that we have been given, they are not ours. They are goods that have been entrusted to us from the Lord. We are just their stewards. And at our judgment, we'll have to show whether we've been good stewards or not, whether we have cared for what he entrusted to us. But this is the key, right? This dishonest steward, he has an awareness of what's coming. He knows he'll be judged and then he'll be out of this house and he'll need a new one. And so he acts accordingly and so should we, that we know our life won't last forever and then we will stand before the Lord who will be our judge. And we won't be able to go back to this old life. We'll need a new house, so to speak. And we want that house to be our father's house in which there are many mansions. All right, so once we know this, this is our goal. We want to end our life in our Father's house where there are many mansions, in heaven. And so now that we have the, the goal, we need to, like the dishonest steward, 
have this singular vision of purpose, right? This clarity of purpose. We need to subordinate all things to that goal. You know, I think a lot of us, we say, yeah, you know, we want heaven. We want heaven. We do. We want to go to heaven. We want to see God face to face. But we want to dabble in this world enough so that we don't lose heaven. You know, we want to have our cake and eat it too. We don't strive after heaven with the singular focus of an athlete striving after a gold medal. And there's a problem with that. That's why our Lord warns us that we can't serve two masters. We will either hate one and love the other, despise one, or be devoted to the other. We can't serve God and mammon. And that word mammon is an interesting one. Often when Jesus uses it, it refers to wealth. But it really can refer to anything that is pursued and valued to the point of idolatry. So really, maybe the first step towards growing in prudence is looking at our life to see, is there anything that would fall under the category of mammon? Is there anything I value to the point of putting it in that first place of my heart and soul reserved for God and then make changes accordingly? Because ultimately, here is the irony. You know, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given you besides. If we seek God, if we seek heaven as this ultimate goal and purpose, this goal under which our whole life is ordered, then we still are, then that leaves us free to enjoy the good things of this life in their proper place and context. Finally, all right, so the steward knows he's being kicked out. He needs a new home. He orders his actions accordingly, right? He has the goal. Now we need the means. You can't, having just a goal is insufficient. And you think of trying to run a marathon. If you just show up on a Saturday without having trained, it's not going to go well. Now, if we want to run a marathon, we need an re exercise regime and diet and etc. Right? The steward knew how to use the worldly resources to guarantee his future security, and that's what he did. We need to do the same. Those good things we've been given, whether it's material wealth, whether it's gifts or talents, whether it's family or friends, we ought to use them for spiritual good, for ours and other people's. Think of wealth. This is an easy one to see. If we've been blessed financially, we ought to give to those, uh, we ought to give to the poor, we ought to give to those less fortunate. God doesn't command that every believer become St. Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa. If we're called to do that, by all means do so, but we are called to be generous when we've been given an abundance, to, to give to those who have less than us. And when we do that, often when we give, we are the ones who receive back as well. Then, of course, we have our time. Our time is the one commodity we can't really buy more of. Or we can't buy back lost time. Each of us has a certain amount of, of years on this planet. And then we go to our eternal reward. We need to make sure that we use our time well. And this doesn't mean we can't ever relax or you know, have fun or have, engage in recreation. We can and should. But even that should be with him and for him. So let's pray for the virtue of prudence. Let's pray for the grace to see reality as it truly is, that the meaning of life is not something I make up for myself, but is given to us by God. 
Life is a pilgrimage to heaven. And let us pray for the grace to coordinate our lives so that we arrive at the end of this pilgrimage, our true homeland of heaven. Let us make use of the good things God has blessed us with in such a way that he transforms us into the saints he created us to be.